today is going to be the final uh, of our the final class here is Alex. How are you doing, Alex? Um, of the uh, discussion that we began, and we started off with a question, and that question is. We established certain facts in the previous series with regards to God. So, okay, now we know that God exists and we're faced with the question. What's the question we're going to face? Why would God change change anything and make a world, make a universe? Assuming that there was intelligence, there was design behind the universe, there had to be purpose as well. Because... A, an intelligence, and certainly uh, an intelligence, the, the, the kind of intelligence that would take to create something so sophisticated as our universe and, you know, somewhere between 1.25 and 8.7 million species that each, uh, you know, propagate and a wonderful creation, unlike the, the whole system and the planets and the everything, you know, liquid water and the complex and the simple and billions of humans. And there's got to be some reason for it. And that's a... Very difficult question because uh, believing in God presupposes that, or at least the Jewish definition of God presupposes that God cannot have any limitations. So it can't be that God needs something that needs to be kind of, kind of be fulfilled with the universe. But if he doesn't need anything, well then, so what lack was there uh, that uh, compelled him to create the universe? It's that, that was the dichotomy, that was the contradiction that we started off with uh, in this discussion. And we said that there's two Jewish answers to this question. Why did God create the universe? Number one uh, is that God, uh, because God existed just as an independent entity, was just God, he didn't have anyone to give to, and therefore he had to create a universe and create humans to be receptacles of God's giving so God wanted to give. He was unable to because it was just God. So he had to create a universe and in the universe create um, people and the people could be the receptacles of God's giving. Hence, that uh, this answer would, uh, would, would claim that God created the universe for humans, but more specifically so humans could receive pleasure. That's one answer and you find that everywhere in Jewish, in Jewish philosophy. The other answer we said is that God, because God was a king without a kingdom, he was a he, he was you know, he was like the king of the mountain, but there's no one else. There's no, there's, there's no he had no dominion over any subject. There was no constituents. Therefore, his kingdom, so to speak, was lacking, and that uh, would be rectified by creating a world of humans who could independently testify to God's existence via usage of their free will, and therefore that would uh, fix or fill some lack that was existing due to the fact that God that God was just there by Himself. Those are the two answers. And uh, I made the claim that at the end, um, they're really saying the same thing. And it's just two different vantage points of the same answer. So today is a, is, is a time where I want to actually address that, that thing. And um, we talked about the different kinds of pleasures that uh, the world uh, offers us. We have the simple pleasures, the physical pleasures, the material pleasures. Pleasures can kind of be experienced with the senses. Pleasures that are you know, not so hard to attain, like the chocolate bar or any, any kind of anything physical, anything that could be experienced with the five senses. is a very simple pleasure. There's not much of a learning curve. You don't really need to give up so much to get it. And you know what? It doesn't really last. It goes away once the uh, cause of the pleasure goes away. Uh, the pleasure goes with it. 
simple basic pleasures. We realize there's more sophisticated pleasures. There's happiness, which is more of a temperament. It's kind of an emotional pleasure. It's somewhat harder to define. It's harder to attain as well. How many books are there written about how to achieve happiness? Lots and lots of them. So there's obviously a form. I haven't never seen a book how to properly enjoy an ice cream. I don't saw a book <laughs> with a big picture. Okay, what is the method? You know, because it's it's very easy to do. It's very easy, and no one has any problems enjoying ice creams. So some people eat it with two hands, some with one hand. But the, there's there's no, there isn't really a there isn't really some sort of uh, insight or process or education necessary to enjoy that. And that's the mark of all the simple pleasures. It's simple. You don't really need to learn how to enjoy it. You get more sophisticated, talk about happiness, it's more complex, harder to achieve, you have to give up a little bit more, but the payout is greater. Happiness, we talked about love. Love is even more of a dedication, even more of compromising on your identity, even more of giving up of yourself. How, how painful is it? How difficult is it to actually acclimate with someone else and share your life with someone else? It's very difficult. You're giving up of your independence. You're giving up of your identity. You're giving up on your space. You're giving up of your time, your energy, your, 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 your emotional, uh, your emotional uh, capacity. Right? It's a lot of giving up. Right? But the payout is greater. So we see that with the ascension from the simple to the more complex pleasures, we notice few things. Number one, the payout is greater, the, player, the pleasure is greater, it's more sophisticated, it's more sublime, it lasts for longer, but additionally, the, the, what you need to do to achieve that is, 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 is more difficult. Uh, today we're talking about the ultimate pleasure. The ultimate pleasure. And when we see ultimate pleasure, we know that it's also going to be the hardest to achieve, the most difficult, the, you're going to have to give up the most, but it's the ultimate pleasure as well. So I wanted to look, I want, and I also find that this is, every time I talk about this, it's kind of hard, it's hard to talk about and explain because it's one of those things that you don't really understand it until you experience it. So, and we'll notice that I mentioned this a few times that the Rambam, Maimonides, when he talks about spirituality and spiritual pleasure, he equates it to um, describing color to a blind person. And I actually put it as one of my quotes here. Try describing color to a blind person. What, 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 what words would you use? How would you describe it? There's no way to do it. It's kind of an experience. If you haven't experienced it, you cannot describe it. And because this pleasure is a purely spiritual pleasure, there's almost no words that I could use to try to convey the idea. I could talk about the idea. I could try to do the... But there's no way that I could, using physical words, describe to you or even the books to describe to us what it is. So in our minds, we don't perceive this as even a pleasure. Like, spiritual pleasure, what does that even mean? Like, what does it even mean to have spiritual pleasure? What is that you... Like, those words are, are, seem foreign to us. Why? Because we just we're physical beings, so we see the world from a physical perspective, and it's very hard for us to imagine something that we've never we've never experienced. So that's the difficulty that we face getting definitions. But what I'm going to do is that's why I decided to actually take the sources, some of the sources that talk about this, and read what, how they describe it, and analyze it, and and maybe use that as a springboard for us to maybe attempt to dip our feet, dip our toe into this into the waters of spiritual pleasures.
Okay. So let's start from the first source. And I translated this myself. I, I It's not a perfect translation. It's in English. The book is written in Hebrew. This is a book written by Lutzato. Lutzato is at the forefront of Jewish philosophers. And he's actually uh, almost a contemporary. He lived in the 18th century, 1707 to 1746. Uh, he only lived 39 years, but he wrote like 150 books. This was just an incredible, incredible person. Um, and this book, The Path of the Just, is the fundamental work of Musar. If you heard the term Musar and and uh, the whole uh, the whole area of Jewish life that uh, governs uh, character refinement and ethical perfection, this book is viewed as the book with regards to Musar. And at the beginning, he asks the question. He says, "Okay, what's the point? What are we here for?" And uh, this is part of what he says. And what the sages have instructed us is that man was created for the purpose of having the pleasure of God and enjoying the zenith of his shechina. Zenith is the word that I use to translate ziv. I don't know how else you would translate it. Um, So man was created for the purpose. What kind of purpose? To have the pleasure of God. Pleasure of God. What does it mean, the pleasure of God? It's a spiritual pleasure. It's the next level, the highest level of pleasure that we could possibly attain. Uh, for this is the true pleasure and the greatest delight that can be, that can be possibly found or could possibly be found. Okay, so he says, number one, this is the pleasure of God, the zenith of the Shekhinah. It's a true pleasure. He's obviously insinuating there's some pleasures which are less true, whatever that means. And it's the greatest pleasure, greatest delight that can be found. And he uses different words to describe pleasure and delight, which is also something which is of note. He's clearly talking about two aspects of this thing. He calls it a pleasure and calls it a delight. He calls it a ta'anug in Hebrew and a idun. These are different words. And this will come, uh, this will come back, um, uh, this will be a critical point later on. And the venue for this delight in, is in truth the next world that was created for this purpose. Okay, so where do we have this pleasure? Next world. Okay, next world is created for this purpose. But the path to reach this desired destination is this world. And the means to bring a man to this goal is the mitzvot that the Almighty commanded us to do. Okay, so what he's saying is like this. A few things. Number one, the purpose, the ultimate purpose is this pleasure, pleasure of God. It's a spiritual pleasure, right? Basting, so to speak, in the Shekhinah, whatever that even means. We'll try to understand what that means. And this is a true pleasure. It's a greatest delight. He uses different words to determine, uh, to describe what is uh, this thing. Is that a pleasure, is it a delight? Well, it's a true pleasure and it's the greatest delight. And he says, the venue for this delight is the next world. What about the venue for this pleasure? Let, let's critically analyze what he's saying. He's saying a few things. We're here to have the pleasure of God. This pleasure of God is a true pleasure and a great delight. He uses two two, term, two two words to describe this pleasure. It's a delight and it's a pleasure. And then he says, the venue for this delight is the next world. So wait a minute. If the venue for this delight is in the next world, where is the venue for this pleasure? He uses two terms. He says, there's a pleasure and it's a delight. The delight is in the next world. Where is the pleasure? In this world. Boom! Booyah! Correct. He's clearly telling us that while this spiritual pleasure is something 
which we'll have a much greater time understanding in the natural world. What the natural world means is a, is, is a spiritual world. And, and well, I have a, a few quotes later on from Maimonides to underscore what this actually means. A spiritual world devoid of physicality, of physical barriers, it's much easier to perceive spirituality. Right? It's hard for you to see, to see spirituality because your eyes are physical and your eyes see physicality. So if there was an angel in this room, well, angel's a spiritual being. You don't see it. You don't have the tools. You don't have the vision, the spiritual vision. I know that's creepy to think about the angel in the room. But that, that, that's an idea. The idea is, is you have physical tools. Your physical tools enable you to connect to the physical world, not the spiritual world. You do have something deep, deep within you which is a spiritual spark, a spiritual neshama, a, a spirit, whatever you want to call it. You have some sort of spiritual entity within yourself as well. True. But for you to perceive spirituality, for you to understand spirituality, for you to experience it, it's much easier in a world where you're just spiritual. That's the world that we call the next world. When that is, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about that in the uh, class, the upcoming class, of what happens after you die. It's not this world, it's the next world. I don't know when that is. It's a good question. That being said, in this world, there is still a capacity to perceive this pleasure because, like he says... The, the, the place for the delight is, 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 in, is in next world, but the place for pleasure is in this world. Okay. Um, but either way, we see from this, and this is one of the sources, one of the primary sources. There are other sources which are much, much earlier. The sources that go back 2,000 years. This is only a 300-year-old document, roughly, maybe a little less than 300 years old. But this document uh, outlines it in a very clear fashion. The purpose is for pleasure. What kind of pleasure? The greatest levels of pleasure. We saw a, a, a progression. There's different kinds of pleasures. We, 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 we experienced, we, 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 we dabbled a little bit in what the Torah tells us about how to achieve you know, the physical pleasures, the happiness, the love, the meaning, purpose. As we grow and we see, this, we see these different kinds of pleasures, uh, we, we broaden our horizons and our perspectives of what, what pleasure is through the Torah. Now we're reaching the end. And the end is this highest level of pleasure. And we still could experience it in this world. In next world, it's much easier, right? devoid of physical obstacles. In this world, we could still do it. We're going to try to see how, uh, how we can do that. And let's look at the next three little, uh, three paragraphs. And this, is, this comes from um, the uh, Maimonides. Right? Maimonides is the uh, 12th century. 12th century, the uh, greatest figure in Jewish halacha, in Jewish uh, philosophy, greatest codifier of Jewish law, he has an essay. He has an essay in which he talks about reward and punishment. And he starts off with, a, with an assumption. He says, if you do good, right, the basic idea is that reward is, is, is given, you know, commensurate to your, your, your good activities. And similarly, there's this idea called punishment. He asks, well, what does it mean? And, and, and he goes into this wonderful treatise on reward and punishment also deals with motivation and altruism and spirituality. It's a fascinating, fascinating uh, piece. And I selected three different paragraphs because I think it's, it's germane to our subject. And let's start it right now. I'm trying, I'm trying to I'm doing this a little quicker than usual because I want to finish in time. Okay, now I can begin to discuss the matter with, uh, with which I am really concerned. So he starts off with this very, very, very long introduction. Uh, where he kind of like negates a lot of mistaken uh, uh, misconceptions, and then he says, and after like he's all he's halfway through, he's like, now we could start, okay? No, that just as a blind man cannot Im- image color, 
A blind person can't be described color. This is what I talked about. And a deaf person cannot experience sounds. And as the, I don't, I don't know how you even read that word. Eunuch. Eunuch cannot feel sexual desire. So bodies cannot attain spiritual delights. Right? We have limitations. We have limitations just like a blind person has limitations in how they could be, how could they perceive color. So too we have limitations in how we could, our physical bodies have limitations in how we could experience um, spiritual delights. Like fish who do not know what the, ele- uh, the element of fire, so are the delights of the spiritual world unknown in this material world. Spiritual delight does not come within our experience at all. We enjoy only bodily pleasures, which come to us through our physical senses, which, uh, such as the pleasure of eating, drinking, and sensual intercourse. Other levels of delight are not present in our experience. We neither recognize nor grasp them at first thought. They come to us only after great searching. It could hardly be otherwise, since we live in a material world and are, therefore, able to achieve only inferior and discontinuous delights. Spiritual delights are eternal. They last forever. They never break off. Between these two kinds of delights, there is no similarity of any sort. Now, whenever this, this is why, this is why uh, the, it's so much. It's very hard to use sources because it's like you just read and everyone just oh, okay. Uh, but let's try to highlight what he says. He says here that we are limited due to our physical. Uh, Makeup, we are limited in our capacity to understand the spiritual, just like the blind person and the deaf person and the eunuch. Eunuch? Eunuch. The eunuch. Uh, we have limitations. Uh, and our experiences are primarily in the physical world. Still, at the end, he throws in this caveat by saying, it could come to us after great searching. Other levels of delight are not present to our experience. We neither recognize nor grasp them at first thought. So at first thought, if you just have a simplistic way of trying to, uh, you know, to, to conceptualize this kind of pleasure, you'll have a hard time. However, they come to us only after great searching. So after great searching, it is possible to understand it. Okay, so that's the uh, first, uh, the first uh, paragraph. Let's go to the second paragraph. Uh, this, this, he skipped, this, I, I skipped a few different paragraphs. Um, to get to this, but I want to—I wanted to highlight um, just some things that he says. He talks about the men who have dedicated their lives to spiritual goals. These men who choose to pur- purify themselves will reach this spiritual height. They will neither experience bodily pleasures nor will they want them. So he says, interesting. He says, when you reach the point of having spiritual pleasures, the physical pleasures lose their appeal. It's not exciting anymore. Why is that? This will resemble a powerful king. You have someone who's a powerful king. He would hardly want to go back to playing ball with children as he did before he became king. I know my kids love playing with Lego. It's just, it's a wonderful pleasure. But if you're a king, you have much bigger pleasures to tackle. Like, you're not going to go back to playing Lego. Lego's fun. But if, you know, for your uh, pleasure spectrum that you're used to... uh, partaking in that, you know, if that still fits into what's exciting for you, the wonderful. But if you have moved on to you know, bigger and better things, it loses its appeal, its allure. Uh, the physical pleasures are not as exciting anymore. Uh, such games attracted him when he was a child and, and was unable to understand the real difference between playing ball and royal power. Like children, we now praise the Lord for the delights of the body and do not understand the delights of the soul. He says, in a certain measure, we're children as well. Why? Because we have to develop our spiritual senses, our spiritual antenna, and and once we do that, we'll say, oh, yeah, ice cream is good. It's wonderful. It's, is that really all there is? 
is that really is that really what we're here for? Is that really worth the time and effort? Maybe it does have some place, but it's certainly not as exciting as it was once your experience, once you once you partake in, in you know in greater pleasures. And uh, let's read the final one, the final uh, paragraph. Our sages also wrote: in the world to come, there is no eating, drinking, washing, anointing, or sexual intercourse. But the righteous sit with the crowns on their head and enjoying the radiance of the divine presence. So he uh, brings a quote from the Talmud that describes what the world to come is going to look like. And he describes it as a world that does not have any physical characteristics. There's no eating, drinking, washing, anointing, sexual intercourse. So what is there? The righteous sit with their crowns on their head, enjoying the radiance of the divine presence. So it's a kind of different, a different kind of existence. In this passage, the expression with their crowns on their head signifies the immortality of the soul, being in for possession of the idea which uh, is God the creator. Okay, so this is an important sentence. This idea of, of the world to come, this idea is one of eternity. It's not, it doesn't have the physical limitations right? in time or, or, or space or anything. Our world is based on time. You, you know, you're born and you die. Right? You have physical limitations. You connect to the world in a physical way. The next world is, is a world of spirituality. It's a spiritual world and therefore there are no limitations. But, but what's that, what's that ne- last sentence there? The soul being a firm possession of the idea which is God the creator. The pleasure that he's talking about is the pleasure of God. Experiencing God, understanding God to the best of your ability. That is a spiritual pleasure. That's what we talk about when we talk about spiritual pleasures, the highest levels of pleasure. It is understanding, experiencing God. God is a purely spiritual idea. Hence, if we're physic, if we're entrenched in, in in physicality, we don't even see why that has value. Just like a small child who wants to play with a ball doesn't perceive the pleasure of being a king. It's he'd rather play ball. You know, he'd, he you, you dangle some candy and he's he's that that's all he wants. As physical entities who only engage in physical pursuits, we don't see the pleasure of understanding God, of perceiving God as being any of any value. Because it's, it's our souls, and our souls are dulled, and our souls are, uh, are within ourselves, and our souls are not the tools that we use to connect to the world. However, once you taste it, once you experience it, once you've been there, once you've done this before, everything else moves down a notch. Everything else is less exciting, less appealing, uh, less motivating, something that you're less interested in. Okay, so, so that's, the, that's the idea. We're talking about this highest level of pleasure. It's kind of hard to define. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to experience. It's obviously more work to attain. What is it? It's the pleasure of God. It's the pleasure of basking in the God's delight, uh, the delight of, of God. It's in the zenith of the Shekhinah. It's these different terms of understanding God. Yes. Immersed in it? Yes, where I think of nothing but him. There's a complete loss. Now, I can't stay there. You know what I mean? It's just momentarily. But is that what you're talking about? In a sense. I, yes, I, I do believe that, that, yes, that would be one way to do it. Um, I, let, let, let's go to the bottom, the last, the last uh, little paragraph. This is from 
Maimonides wrote a book of mitzvot. A book of mitzvot. Sefer mitzvot is called in Hebrew. And he, ta- he takes all the 613 mitzvot and he explains what it means. And he, the mitzvah number three, so it's all the way at the top of the mitzvahs, it's a mitzvah to love God. We know we say in the Shema, ve'ahavta es Hashem alokach, you have to love God. What does it mean to love God? We can't even understand God. What does that mean? So the Rambam it, it, it explains. This means to think and introspect in his, mitz, in his mitzvahs, as I should say, in his Torah and his creation, till we gain insight and we take pleasure with this insight to the utmost degree. This is the requisite love. This is a very, very short little uh, piece. I'll read it again. What does it mean to love God? Number one, you have to think. You have to engage in some sort of intellectual process. You have to do introspection. What is introspection? What's the difference between thinking and introspection? It's a, introspection is a much deeper level of thought. It's, 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 it's like isolation. Right? When you isolate everything else and you just zone in, zero in on a certain thing, right? you think about it, then it's a much deeper level of thought. Okay, what are you, but what are you thinking about? His mitzvahs. Any one of the mitzvahs of God. The Torah of God and the creation of God. What do we mean by creation of God? We mean science. The world around us. So you think and you think of deep, deep thoughts until you have an insight. Until you discover something. Until you see the double helix form. Double helix form. Or until you see the expanding universe. Right? You spend Years dedicated on this subject. You're trying to find this God particle that they're trying to find. Right? You know it's there. There's such incredible complexity. The, God, the, the way God mapped out the world. You see a cell. You, you understand the functioning of uh, the function of the liver. You see how everything fits in. Right? You have this insight. Yeah, this, this, this moment. This aha moment as we call it. And then you have pleasure. There's certain pleasure sets in after that, after that because you basically perceived a certain measure of God. And that pleasure is what, is, is, is what it means to love God. Basically, four steps. you got to take God's creation, either his Torah, his mitzvahs, or his, even the physical creation, science. God gave us this in order that we can use them as a tool to understand him. You understand Torah, you understand a certain measure of God. You understand a mitzvah, mitzvah is a God, God's commandment. He says, do this. He does it for a specific reason, right? Because it, contained with it, within every mitzvah is a certain measure of understanding of God. Now, it's not, it's not superficially understood. You got to think, you got to zero in. You have to have deep, uh, steady, concentrated thought on that particular thing, whether it's creation, science, whether it's Torah, whether it's any one of the mitzvahs. you got to do that until you have some sort of insight. You discover something. Right? It's a hasagah, it's an attainment, some sort of achievement, some sort of intellectual achievement. Aha moment. And that pleasure is the pleasure of understanding God. And this is what's required upon us uh, with regards to the mitzvah of, 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 of loving God. Now, if you notice, he says, and we take pleasure in this insight with the utmost degree, which is, I translate this myself, but maybe the better way to say it is the ultimate. You experience the ultimate pleasure. This is the way to do it. God, so to speak, 
we, like we mentioned this countless times, the idea of God is so distant from us. We have so many limitations. We are physical entities who experience the world in a physical way. God is invisible. We cannot see him. There's nothing you can do to see him. Still, God put us here and wants us to connect him. Wants us to quote-unquote see him, understand him, relate to him. And what he did is he, he made the world in a way where there are certain ideas, right? intellectual ideas, physical ideas, that are like I, I like to, I like to describe it as a um, uh, what's it called when you uh, when you have like a uh, and as uh, like when you put out the Easter eggs <laughs> a hunt what's it called when you like uh, a scavenger hunt yeah it's like a scavenger hunt of uh, let's see Easter eggs uh, but <laughs> that's what it's. Yeah, sorry, I apologize for that. <laughs> it's a scavenger hunt, right? God, like, hid into the world little pockets of tremendous complexity. You could have used the analogy uh, looking for the apicol. Oh, I'm looking for Okay, maybe. <laughs> of incredible complexity. And I think years ago, and they, like 300 years ago, they didn't know what a cell was. They didn't know. It's, it's a tremendous discovery. They discovered it. It was always there. People 2,000 years ago had cells, right? But it was a discovery. Why, why does God need to make such a complex world? Because it's a it's a scavenger. It's a little pocket of complexity that makes humans realize how infinitesimally complex is God's creation. And hence, how wonderful the idea, it's a, like an insight that we have into God. And that experience is a spiritual experience that could grant a, the person the highest degree of pleasure possible. That's why we have a Torah. A Torah is God's wisdom. The Torah is is is, is uh, infinitely complex, right? I I personally myself have experienced this. That one page of Torah has it goes you you can study it and goes deeper and deeper. And no matter how deep you go, you see it's even deeper than that. And like because it's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, just like God Himself, has no limitations. His Torah also has limitations. Like the like like it says in the book of Job, is that Ruchava Miniyam? It's 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 wider than the ocean, right? Arucham Eretz Mida. It's 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 broader than the entire universe. That's what the Torah is. The universe is like that as well. It's no matter how much of understanding we think we have in the brain and how the brain functions, right? It's still a sliver of the top of the. Uh, you know, of the iceberg. It's nothing. We know how little we know about it. It's so complex. Why does God make it so complex? Because it is a way for us to perceive his greatness, to have a little measure of understanding of experiencing God. That pleasure, the ultimate pleasure. That that pleasure is the pleasure that we're describing here. And that pleasure is a pleasure that's generally reserved for a time when our way of connecting to the world is spiritual and spiritual only, our physical uh, our physical uh, inhibitions uh, prevent us or make it much more difficult for us to perceive spirituality. It's very difficult. We could still do it. Right? We st- we have an outline of how it works. Right? We have the instructions of the Rambam, the Maimonides at the bottom. Right? It was basically four steps. You got to take something. It could be anything, anything that, that that you know that God did for us. It could be Torah. It could be a mitzvah, like you described. It could be 
science. It could be an atom. It could be an animal. You could take an animal and see it's such a tiny little, these tiny little flies, and they contain complexity that is unrivaled by anything that humans do. The smallest, the most simple of flies is something which no amount of human engineering could create. And to top that off, those things could propagate and reproduce. Like, nothing that you, nothing that humans could do could, could reproduce on their own. Nothing. It's not possible. Everything that even computers, right? Computers are they're only as good as how they're programmed. It's how well they're programmed. They cannot think on their own. Don't worry about the artificial intelligence. It's not happening. There's only they, it could only be given intelligence, um, and that intelligence could be used like that's how it works. A tiny little fly is more complex than any amount of of of, of technology of uh, engineering that humans could possibly do yeah. within our bodies. Right? If you were to string out all the little canals and veins and arteries and passageways, you know you would have a larger than, uh, you would have a network larger than the entire uh, systems of roads in like the world, something like that. Just think about the complexity. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. Like if you, just, just within ourselves, just take out every vein and connect it, you know, end-to-end with, you know, with every other vein and every other artery and every other passageway within ourselves. Mind-boggling complexity. And there's never a traffic there's never traffic. There's never like a, like there's never like rubbernecking or uh, any sort of impasse. It's amazing. You have one blood clot, you're done. Oh, you're not done. You're you're in grave danger being done. Think about a system, a traffic system, that the entire world and, and there's cars everywhere on every single street, and there's never an accident. And there's never a buildup. And there's never a blockage. And there's never any potholes. And it just works without asking questions. Mind-boggling complexity. And it's there for us. And why did the Almighty do it like that? Because we could use that as a stepping stone to understand Him. You know, we have to think about that. You have to analyze it. You have to think. You have to zero in on such a thing. It's science, but it's, 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 it's God's handiwork. And there, there's so many examples. Like, you know, the... Even things that you encounter every day, like just liquid water, being able to uh, to breathe oxygen, and the you know the photosynthesis, and how it all works out perfectly. That that the balance of carbon and oxygen, just perfect, perfect. The Almighty made it for us that we could live, and the the exact distance of the sun from um, you know the that that the, the small little sliver of temperature that human life is possible at, right? and we're exactly right there, right? Perfect, ninety three million miles away from the sun. A little bit close, a little bit further. We're either toast or we're icicles. All perfect. It's it's a way to perceive God's handiwork. You think about that. You analyze it. You have this aha moment of achievement, of discovery, of insight, and you you see God. Right? Obviously, it's not. It, it, it's it's a small little. It's a small little pocket of a small little experience that you have. But in a certain measure, you have this pleasure of seeing this complexity that God put into the, into the universe for us to understand Him. This is the pleasure that we're talking about. This is the highest level of pleasure. It's a pleasure that uh, we hope uh, we will be able to experience as well in the next world in a much greater way. In the next world, there's no such a thing as physicality. We're just spirituals. It's much easier for us to understand it once you've experienced it, just like 
a blind person, if they haven't seen color, they have a hard time understanding. It's very hard to give descriptions to it. Still, I think, in, 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 even in this world, even with our current state, we have enough out there. There's enough out there. There's enough complexity out there in science, in the mitzvahs, in Torah, uh, that we could use to understand God. I'm, I'm intrigued by uh, all this, particularly the Steve. next world being spiritual more than physical. Yes. Uh, is that the only Jewish teaching on that? And what I'm getting at is... I've also heard what I think is Jewish thought on this, uh, that the next world could be a physical world where man knows war no more, uh, where um, the whole world is filled with knowledge of God, uh, and even the sacrificial system might return. Uh, that's a physical world, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so absolutely correct. So actually, if we, if we were to take this, um, this treatise that of Maimonides, and at the beginning, he starts off by saying, wait a minute, there seems to be so much confusion with this question. We talk about reward and punishment, we see the idea of a Mashiach, it's all over Jewish literature, uh, the Mashiach is in this world, we see the idea of Gan Eden, Garden of Eden, Paradise, all over Jewish literature. Right? We see the idea of Tchias Amesim, Resuscitation of the Dead, right? all over Jewish literature, literally, everywhere. And we see the Devil Amapa, also, what he's trying to do is distinguish what is, he's not, he's, they're all true. The question is, what is the ultimate and what is just, um, you know, and, and what is just a nice thing that's going to happen, but it's not the ultimate end. So, so no, absolutely not. So he, 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 and later on, like, like literally, like a few a paragraph, a paragraph after this, he talks about, okay, uh, what does, what does it mean that the world will be filled with knowledge of God? Right? That's the physical world right, right here, right now. In a certain phase of the physical world's existence, it will be a mass understanding. And I think, I think even today, like you see, you talk about God. Okay? There is a certain measure of mass acceptance of this idea. Yeah. Two thousand years ago, only the Jews claimed that there was one infinite, uh, one infinite being. Only the Jews. And now you have the majority of the world already adopted either that idea entirely or something very similar to that idea. So yes, the idea of mass adoption, that, that's true and that's in this, this world and that's, not, and that's not what we're talking about. It's a distinct idea. But you're absolutely correct, yes. Well, I, and I could be wrong in this, but I was understanding it as the physical world will continue to exist. Like, you know, Messianic era, Allah, Allah, physical world will still exist. We will still be physical beings, but our brains and our desires will have changed to the point that we're no longer driven by that physicality and we're no longer limited by that kind of physical mindset and kind of how we think and how we're motivated and why we do the things that we do and what our wants and our focus is. And that's what the difference would be. Like, we would still be physical people, but we'd be better people. Yeah, so so, so that... So that might be the messianic uh, era or resuscitation of the dead. It's not clear. Like I'm trying to find actual sources that say what happens when, what's the progression. It's it's yeah. It's it's the, the, you know these things are all true, um, but the 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 next world quote unquote we have that source. There's no eating. There's no drinking. There's no washing. No anointing. No sexual intercourse. Right? That's means, our sages' role. Well, though that that's in the Talmud. That's an ancient but Jewish. No, is there any Torah? 
Yeah, yeah, these things are all source, all source for the Torah. There's countless sources um, uh, for for. There would be no eating, drinking, or washing. Well, well the, the, it's not specifically that. That's just to describe it as being devoid of physicality. Right. In next world, like uh, for example, like uh, we talk about the uh, resuscitation of the dead. There's a. I was just learning well, that's this. That's pretty specific. In, that's in specific. Valley of the dry bones, right? Well. Actually, when the Talmud says, okay, where is the source in the Torah? It brings about 15 or 20 sources. It doesn't bring that one, Valley of the Dry Bones. Um, it brings it, but all, because there that's, it brings it to analyze whether that's a, that's, that's a, that's a metaphor or that's real and has a, a debate about that story in Ezekiel. But also, that's, that's remember, that's from the prophets. And when, it, when it, it's trying to bring proof from the Torah itself. Uh, but it brings... I didn't count them, like about 15 or 20 sources for this, for for, for the idea of resuscitation of the dead. But these are all distinct themes, and uh, I, I would advise everyone to read this Maimonides piece in its entirety. I have a translation of it in English if you want, just email me. Um, was there any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, so um, the Mishnah, the Mishnah of Perkevot says, how Lama Zeh, this, this world, uh, in front of the next world, is like a corridor. It's a hallway to the next world. And the next world is like the ballroom, so to speak. It's like a passageway. Um, you know, that, that's one source. There's many, many other sources that talk about this. But yeah, it is a progression. Like it's, yes. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, like we still talk about the Jews going back to Israel as being part of it. That's already begun in you know in a you know in a, in a big way, like the past hundred fifty years. The, the temple and the Messiah and all those themes are like we're well on our way. Like you know, two hundred years ago, the idea of Jews living in Israel was so ridiculous. Like, there was almost nothing going on in Israel. There was uh, there was no one living there at all. Like much less uh, Jews. And, you know, and just and. You know, like today, there's 6 million Jews living in Israel. You know, it's, it's amazing to see. Like, just if you were to zoom out and just give a, a historical perspective on what's on what's happening, we see the Jews come back to Israel. This is foretold in the Torah. 200 years ago, someone says, that's outrageous. The Jews going back to Israel? It's, it's insane. Jews haven't been living in Israel for 800 years. Jerusalem was the first Judah city, right? There was no one living in Jerusalem. It was, it was empty. It was desolate after, after the Romans came. Jews were everywhere else in the world, in Europe, in North Africa, and, you know, out east in, Ara- you know, in Arabia, but Israel. And now, look at that. The Torah foretold the Jews go back to Israel. And look, there's six million Jews living there. So that's already, uh, you know, th- that process has begun. We say that the idea of the world having knowledge of God, that has already began, begun. Right? There's uh, the majority of people in the world believe, you know, I, don't know, I wouldn't say exactly the same way we believe with regards to God, but somewhat similar uh, to the idea of, you know, the idea of God. Mass adoption of that idea. Like, you know, I, I don't think we're waiting for some sort of, like, bomb to drop. It's not like, oh, everyone knows it. It's, it you, know, there's a, you know, there's a process and there's a progress, and, and we're, we're well on our way to have that, have that, uh, to have that actually being actualized. Uh, now, the, world, the next world, we're not there yet. We're, we're still eating and drinking. What is the Jewish concept of having a guardian angel? A guardian because angel? You're talking about things that are well accepted, and certainly having a guardian angel would be something that the average person would have a point of reference on. What's the Jewish thought on that? Guardian angel. 
well, we have we have some verses in in, in the Torah and Psalms, for example, that talk about uh, the others: the angel to my right, an angel to my left, right. an angel in front of me, an angel behind me. Correct. Um, we have Shemar Taim Hashem. Two guardian angels that escort us through this physical life. We have sources of the Talmud talking about the angels. Uh, Sits the angels to your right and sits the angels to your left when you're sleeping. And, and why would that be um, a concept that could not be accepted by everyone? I think it could be. You know, it's just hard for us to, you know, like I said, if there's angels in this room, we don't see them. Right? But why would you um, think it not logical for that to be? I think it, it, it might be perfectly logical. It might be, yes. It might be, yeah, the question is what benefit do we have? Like, what do you gain by saying that there's angels? And that they, you know, the idea of an angel is obviously, that the Torah talks about angels. Genesis is talking, you know, how many angels are there in Genesis? There's lots of angels. Um, Abraham encounters angels, J- J- Jacob sends angels, Jacob has the angels in the... Right, he wrestles with He wrestles with an angel in, you know, in the, in the sanctuary we have a picture of... Uh, of Jacob sleeping and the angels went up and down the, the right. ladder. So yes, the idea is is ubiquitous in Judaism and it's uh, also in Jewish literature. Yeah, so. Um, I, I sense a hesitancy in you that. No, I, I'm, I'm trying to trying to think of, of the guardian angel, someone guarding you. I'm sure there's a source for it. Yeah. No, there, but there, there might there might be universal agreement. Yeah, it's also one of those things that you can't really prove. Like it's not provable, and it's an idea that exists in other cultures, um, and has been used I, I, yeah. What she said, huh? <laughs> I, I, no, I, I agree. Like, we talked about the, the Satan, right? Yeah. Satan is a concept, which is yeah. another example. Like, you know, the, the, uh, the Christian idea of Satan and the Jewish idea of Satan are very different. You know, we have something in Jewish literature, in Jewish philosophy, called Satan or Satan. It doesn't mean the same thing as... Yeah, so... Um, I'm trying to think, is, is there any source anywhere that says that we have some sort of guardian angel? We have sources that say Shomer Pleim Hashem, that the Almighty guards us from um, happenstances or occurrences or dangerances. But it's not a personal thing. Like, I feel like no, the Christian idea of guardian angel is this very personal No, idea. but we do, we do have the idea of personal supervision. Like, God is just supervising us on an individual level. But he didn't assign. Like, it's not like Bob the angel has been assigned to you and Joe the angel has been assigned to me. They're, like, riding on top of our car while we drive. You know, like I feel like in other belief systems, that's that's what guardian angel means. And I don't know. I mean, maybe that is a Jewish idea, but I have not seen that as a Jewish idea. But that's definitely an idea that you would pick up from Greek and Roman philosophies, this idea that, you know, that God and 
demigods and that kind of stuff interact in the physical realm in that way? No, but we don't we don't deny that God interacts in the physical realm. Um, God, you know, God, uh, you know, participates and God cares and God supervises. Um, That isn't, I mean, God uses in Jewish philosophy, I think, these angels and whatever, but there is no, in no place that I know of it, what? Isn't the word closer to messenger? Well, the word malach is the word to mean either a messenger or an angel, yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I, it's some sort of spiritual force that the Almighty employs to right, you. Right, that he employs, but that they're not that they are not God. They of course are not. not. Divine, no, not uh, whereas other faiths do we don't uh, give ascribe divinity to these things. Uh, yeah. Certainly uh, you know, certainly pagans. Yeah. Right. There are a lot of we don't give we don't give divine status to anything aside from God. Yeah. Right. No Which person, is, no entity, no, no spirit, no nothing. Which is certainly one of the reasons for Jesus not being... Correct, that's absolutely correct. And even, even, you know, some people um, misunderstand the idea of a soul as being some sort of part of God. It's not. Uh, the idea of having a part of God, that, like, that's, that's, that's antithetical to, Jewish, to Jew, basic, basic Jewish faith. Uh, it could be a spiritual entity, and God's also a spiritual entity, but doesn't make it God. Just because an angel is a spiritual entity and your soul is a spiritual entity doesn't mean your soul is an angel. Okay, so we're going to stop here and we're going to have now a like a three-minute break or five-minute break. Uh, Alex Pfeffer in the back uh, brought us some food. Food to the kitchen. Everyone